as the days went by, I started to become delirious. I started to hallucinate. I remember almost feeling my organs drying up. Madagascar was one of those, I swear to you, I cannot pin down or remember there being one day that was just a nice, pleasant, simple day's hike. I got the deadliest strain of malaria um, and I got it at the time that there was a village that suffered with the bubonic plague. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Now today's guest, whoa, what a guy. He will be remembered because of what he's done forever. His journey has been phenomenal. Not only did he get three Guinness World Records, he single-handedly, solo, crossed Mongolia. He then went through Madagascar. He then walked the length of the Yangtze River. This is a true adventurer, and he's only a youngster. He's only 32 now. His story is fascinating, and it really gets me excited because I'm an adventurer in such a small kind of way compared to him. So if you've ever thought about getting out there, trying to achieve something, ever thought about pushing yourself to something you haven't done before, getting comfortable being in an uncomfortable space, then this is the episode for you. Cue the music for the incredible and awesome Ash Dykes. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced Metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Ash Dykes is here to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming in, mate. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I have been following your story and yeah. your progress, and I just want to make sure that we're very clear before we start. You are a bloody lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> you, man, I, I'm fascinated mm. by why you have chosen over the years to do what you do Okay, and how you then got into the right headspace to be able to achieve these things. Now, I'm sure for you, it's very different because you've done it, you've accomplished it, you've been there than yeah. it is for us that maybe are watching on TV, mm. okay, or have heard the story, read the stuff about you. Yeah. But where does someone start as a young boy to end up becoming the crazy lunatic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my mum would definitely think you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a long one and it was fairly accidental, I would say, the beginning. Uh, but again, you know, just to give you some context and backstory, uh, from North Wales, as you know, a little town there called Old Colwyn, right on the coast, kind of like a, a lazy town, quiet town, nothing much happening there. But I had a good upbringing, good parents. 
Um, and yeah, I, I in a school, normal school, a school Brunelian, I progressed from school onto college. And now this is when things started to change. And so, you know, being raised in, in Wales, you've got the lakes, you've got the mountains, you've got the forests, you know, it's all happening there in terms of the outdoors, nature, in terms of sports as well. Um, but then it was when I went on to my outdoor education course that things started to shift slightly because that's sort of a big step where you realize what you want to. And most people don't know what they want to, to do next. And I certainly didn't know at that point. But you sort of learn a little bit more about yourself. And what I learned on that college college course is that I was a kinesthetic learner. Learned far more through hands-on practical experiences. Yep. Um, you know, getting out there, getting stuck in, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, rather than in a classroom, listening to a teacher, lecture. And I just I just switched off. I just it wasn't my my way of learning. In. Didn't go in. Didn't go in. Yeah. Didn't go in. Mm. Yeah, I needed to be out there. And when I was out there, I would learn, you know, tenfold by practicing. You know, and that could be anything, not just physical, but it could be putting stuff together. It could be working something out. And instead of reading the instructions, just getting stuck in and, and you know, understanding it a lot quicker than usual and, and, and doing that. Um, and then whilst the rest of the students on that college course were looking to either go to the military or university, I was, again, I felt like I was the only lost student on that college course. I had no fucking idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to develop myself, wanted to grow wanted to learn about the world and about myself, how I handle certain scenarios, certain situations, but I didn't know how to make that happen. You know, I don't come from a financial background. So at that point I was working two, three different jobs, fish and chip shop, waiter, and as a lifeguard. Um, and then when I finished my college course, I was full-time in lifeguarding. And then that's when I say it kind of clicked. That's when I realized maybe travel, maybe there's opportunities in travel where I can develop myself grow as a as a person go out there learn through experiences and from when that idea was first planted and that was probably years and years that it was planted over you know watching the David Attenborough shows and not wanting to watch it from the TV but wanting to be out there amongst it hearing stories you know my granddad lived 21 years in Pakistan and I don't really know him that that well because I, I saw him maybe three four times in my life but every time I'd meet him he would tell me these crazy stories you know one of my uncles who was from Zimbabwe and then he would also share these crazy stories, you know, so from stories to watching documentaries to seeing um, images on Google or in magazines, I was fascinated, super fascinated. And then I came up with the idea to work, 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 you know, 240 hours a month, cycling all day, every day along the windy close, uh, the coastline there, winter, summer, it didn't matter. And I raised uh, a decent amount of money up with a friend who decided to jump on board and wanted to come traveling with me. And then at age 19, after about two years of planning and breaking down these sort of different goals, because it felt like this impossible task from a guy from from Old Colwyn, you know, to plan for travels, um, barely any money. I think I managed to save up in that year or two, 10, 12,000 pound in a year, two years of work, you know? And, um, <laughs> and then that was it. I, I set off age 19. I was in China. And again, you know, this was a big step for me. Uh, heading out there whilst everyone was going to sort of to university. I didn't know what was going to come my way. I had no anticipation that I would be sort of able to achieve a, an adventuring career and get paid to pursue my passion and take on expeditions all over the world. I just went out there, that sort of reckless, dangerous, sometimes illegal, foolhardiness um, sort of mindset. And But when I was in China, I realized I was very much on the beaten track, sharing the same photos, stories, experiences as all of the rest of the tourists, which was nice. 
I met people from all over the world, but it wasn't what I was there for. I wanted to mix and mingle with the locals. I wanted to to learn through self-development from the locals, their stories, their way of life. Um, and so cutting a long story short, I, I ventured from China to Cambodia. And me and my friend at that point, we were sulking on the Mekong Riverbank. We'd spent way more money than anticipated. And we just hadn't got or gathered any cool adventures, any stories to our name, you know? So we were kind of like, look, we need to save money and we need to do something adventurous. And I said, let's just get a bicycle. And we were on a shoestring budget. So this had to be really affordable, even though we were in Cambodia, which is such a cheap country. And let's cycle the length of Cambodia and Vietnam. And my, I remember this clearly. My friend sort of laughed. He was like, sounds great. I reckon we do it. But uh, you know what bikes, where do we get bicycles from and how much are we willing to spend? And as he said that, there was a, a little old lady behind a lot cycling along the Mekong River, you know, just sort of screeching away, this rusty, ridiculous looking thing. But it looked like something we could afford. And so we did. Like within the day, we purchased a bike that cost £10. We found string on the side of the road that we used to strap our rucksack onto the back. We didn't have no pump, no puncture repair kit. We didn't have no map. We had no technology whatsoever. Uh, And off we went. We cycled Cambodia and Vietnam. And that, I think, was the catalyst. That Vietnam cycle, you know, chased by dogs, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries. Then one day we cycled over 45 hours with no sleep. So it was actually 39 hours of straight cycling through the day, through the night, through the following day. Um, I think that was to, I think our visa was about to expire. So that's why we hurried up that pace. And I just remember being 19 and saying, wow, you know, I think, wouldn't it be amazing if towards the end of my days, I've got this world map and I've got these different routes sort of penciled across different countries on the world map saying, this is where I hitchhiked, this is where I cycled, this is where I hiked. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. Um, I just thought that would be cool if I can, have a life of rich experiences all over the planet. Uh, But then from that point, I guess it did start getting pretty crazy. The adventures start to build and build and get bigger and better. Um, But, you know, it took a few years before I attempted my, before I decided I wanted to do the Mongolia trek. Okay, let's, let's, let's give this some perspective. Yeah. How far, in terms of miles or kilometers, is Cambodia and Vietnam to cycle? So that was eleven, just over 1,100 miles. 1,100 miles? Yeah. Okay. So for everyone that's, that, that knows me, that's, that's watching this right now or listening to this right now, I've cycled from London to Paris and then on from Paris to Geneva. Nice. Okay. So London to Paris is about 280 kilometers. Right. Maybe a bit, no, it's 324 kilometers. Okay. Um, and then from Paris to Geneva, you have to go over the Jura Mountains. Okay. And yeah. so that's a, that's a climb, a two-day climb, and then a one-day just going downhill the whole day, nice. which is yeah, which is cool. lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 that's a, that's a seven-day trip with a one-day off. Yeah. And that's half the distance, okay, of what you did. Mm. Okay. And I and and I felt I'd been on an almighty challenge. Got you. Uh, and I had state of the art bikes. Right. I had a support team. You know, yeah. there were other people riding with me. We had yeah. food prepared in the vans. You know, you know, when we got there, they took the bikes off you, and you know, yeah. as you were staggering back to sit down. <laughs> nice. um, and so, so I, I had essentially the luxury version of what you did. Right. Right. The, the thought and, and what we were doing, we were raising money for World Bicycle Aid. Okay. And they brought one of the bikes along. Yeah. Okay. That 
that, that are provided to the people that need them in various parts of Africa. Wow, nice. And every one of us got a chance to ride that bike. Got you. And that bike was about 10 times heavier than my bike. Oh. It had a big old basket on it. Yeah. yeah. It was like it was like a practical bike, not yeah. for, right, for, for, for these villages in Africa. Like to yeah. work and back, really, right? And you could ride five kilometers on it, and it felt like you'd done a hundred. It was yeah. all, it was awful yeah. after being yeah, on yeah. you in your carbon frame, uh-huh. you know, specialized <laughs> for sure. doodah. For sure. So, I've got a little bit of. I think I think I've got a little bit of empathy for what that might have been like for you yes. going on that kind of shoestring budget with all the kit on your back as well. Yeah, yeah. When you got to the end, did you have a great sense of accomplishment that you'd got there? I did. Yeah, yeah. I remember feeling really buzzed up because the bikes they broke seventeen times in total. The pedals fell off because Vietnam's very mountainous as well. And we went during the storm. So we were just hit, but we'd still wear vests. It wasn't that cold. Um, but yeah, they broke 17 times in total. I remember cycling up a mountain in the middle of the night. must have been about two, three o'clock in the morning. And the pedals fell off. <laughs> they just, they dropped off, just fell off completely. Unbolted themselves. Uh... Yeah, they actually screwed off. So you've still got the metal pole sticking out. So we ended up cycling using the metal poles so that it, they didn't have a pedal effectively, but the metal poles started digging into our trainers. Uh, so that's when we needed to, you know, sort out. And I remember that same mountain, that same evening, um, we got a puncture. And of course, we didn't take a puncture or a it. So we're wheeling it in and it, it's similar, you know, basket on the front, little pink bear. We've got a loaf of bread and peanut butter on the basket too. <laughs> and we rock up, we see locals were still awake. And we said like, look, we pulled this bike towards them and they were like, fucking, you know, in their language, they were yeah. wondering where, where it, they kept pointing at the, the pedals, where are the pedals? Whilst they're trying to fix the pump and then wished as well. They didn't want any money, no nothing. They were just like, have a, have a good cycle. Yeah, I mean, you idiots. Yeah. yeah, it was one of those. Yeah, we were like, fucking, this is ridiculous. So that was your, that was kind of like your, first sense of doing something meaningful yeah that that was my first away from home adventure and that that really hit me so much i was like fuck i want to i i effectively found my niche and found my passion and i really didn't want to stop this has to be my life yeah it was one of those because i learned even on on that journey i felt like i had really pushed myself and learned quite a bit about myself during that trip you know no map so any locals we would come across we wrote on a piece of paper different towns that we would hope to come along and we didn't know how to pronounce it so we'd be like you know trying to communicate to them and show them and they it was by pointing you know around about five six different turnings how crazy the roads are in vietnam too they would just point in the direction we were just hoping that they were right and off, off we went how mad is that it was crazy again i can anything i can simulate it to i did something called the lanka challenge once which was yep. a thousand kilometer tuk-tuk adventure oh nice and on day one yeah they take your phones off you yeah and they say go and find colombo fish market <laughs> and you're like oh, where is it <laughs> like find it yeah and and no one speaks english yeah so you're just like right and then so you're trying to describe fish you're trying yes. to describe a market and that kind of stuff exactly yeah exactly and, and, you're like, and, and people are just looking at you like you're yeah. mad as a box of yeah, frogs yeah, yeah yeah and something that was probably a five minute ride and it took to actually took an hour and a half but yeah. you eventually get there and it's like yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> right <laughs> we got it we got it <laughs> got it in the end yeah so all of the challenge added up on top of the cycle itself because of those reasons mm. it made it like actually a bigger i look back now and I don't, you know, that was the smallest adventure I had done. But it was one of those that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have done everything that was to come. Now, you've gone on to do some incredible adventures over time, and I want to go through each one of those with you. But Mm. did you come home after that trip straight away or did you stay? 
I stayed. We The adventures really continued. We literally, within a week, we went from Vietnam, from Hanoi, which was our finish point. In the north, yeah. We got rid of the, well, we gave the bikes to some locals. I'm sure the locals laughed and threw them <laughs> in the scrapyard. And then we went over to Thailand to a place called Pai. Uh, and this is in the jungle, right on the border of Myanmar, uh, mm-hmm. Burma. And we saw a, a Thai guy. As we were just exploring Pai up north, this was 2010, uh, we saw a Thai guy, and he was like the Thai Rambo. He had this bandana sort of wrapped around his head. He had a machete in his hand, um, and he could speak a little bit of English. So he just approached us, and he says, you know, do you, want, do you guys want an adventure in the jungle? We've, um, I could take you in the jungle. I can teach you how to survive in the jungle. And if we walk far enough, there's a, a Burmese hill tribe in the distance that are traveling, and they're trying to migrate legally over to Thailand from Myanmar. Me and my friend were just like, shall we do it? And we, we did. We said we will come back this same time tomorrow with like a backpack and we'll, we'll come and join you. And for the next few days, it wasn't a big adventure, but it was a good few days trekking through the jungle. He was teaching us how to hunt, how to gather, how to build rafts and shelter using natural resources. Literally just a machete and off we went. We were just eating from the land until we eventually got to a community and they too were teaching us further on how to, how to gather, how to hunt. Um, and this wasn't like a touristic trip that you do. This was just by random. Even the Burmese Hill Tribe were like, what the fuck are these guys doing here? <laughs> I think they were pretty concerned because they were doing something, you know, a bit, a bit illegal. And then we were too. We were now in Myanmar illegally, across the border, through the jungle with no permit, with no, in the time where Myanmar was shut down to all Westerners, don't think it opened until 2012. But it was an amazing experience. And that's when I realized that the saying, which I didn't know at the time, but... Um, what was it? The more comfortable, the more uncomfortable you make yourself, the more comfortable you become. Because I just remember hearing these jungle noises being eaten alive. You know, I remember in the middle of the night, I woke up, my bedding was a banana leaf and the, the shelter was bamboo with banana leaves over the top in case it rained. And I remember seeing these big red ants marching alongside my banana leaf. And that kept me up for a good hour or two. I was like, fucking hell, you know, is there any on me? I was only 19. And then eventually, I think it was the second night where I just woke up, I saw them again. And I just realized they're not bothering me. So I'm not like, they can, they can carry on. This is their pathway to the other side of the jungle. Uh, and I just fell back to sleep. So all of the niggles and the creepy crawlies and the bites, and like the smoke of the fire getting, getting um, in my way, it, we, we almost became comfortable with that. And then it was, again, so I learned a lot from Vietnam. I then learned a little, little nuggets, little important nuggets that would really help me on my future adventures, but I didn't at the time that made me want to one up the next adventure you know you're right you made me just think about some of my my adventures mm, right and it's like going it going and climbing the mountains that i've climbed it's like we we were in ecuador and on cotopaxi and chimborazo and we were learning right. i was learning my uh, ice handling skills so ice climbing yeah and and the first day it was it was really overwhelming. Mm. It was like, I mean, you know, yeah, okay, you're learning how to use the tools and whatnot, but there's a lot of upper body strength yeah, that's required. A lot of forearm strength like, with yeah, ice climbing. Because you're, you're with, and it was just like, I didn't, I didn't think at the end of the first day that I was going to be able to get through that. I'm yeah. like, Jesus, man, that's like, yeah. I've got to do this all day, every day. This is going to be really tough. Ice climbing, yeah. But the second day, it's almost like I made my peace with it. Mm made my piece with it, so it's going to hurt. So just deal with it. Yeah. Okay, your muscles are going to gain the strength and then, yeah. then you'll get over it and you'll be fine. And staying in tea houses when I climb and the, 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 
Oh, yak, yak dung. Yeah. When they take the yak dung and they put that on the fire because mm-hmm. there's no wood because you're above the tree yep. line. And at first, the smell of it is so overwhelming. Right. You're like, How on earth are we going <laughs> to sit inside with that blooming stove yeah. on, with that stuff being burnt? It's like, you don't know, why are you here? Why are you here? Yeah. But then by day exactly. three, you can't even smell it. It's just like you've you're just, not you, your, your body's it. just got used to it. Your mind's just accepted it. Yeah. And no, no longer is it, is it a challenge. No. And in, then you thank them for how practical they are, right? And that you've got a fire. And yeah. that they dry out the dung so that they can use it for the flames, you know? And mm. you're just like, good thinking. Because they can heat my water up and I can have exactly. a hot bath. Yeah. <laughs> so you then start looking at the, the, the pros rather than the cons, right? And you remember more the positives when you leave rather than the negatives at that, yeah. at that time. Yeah. And then you become more comfortable with the fact that you did that. Then when you do the next, you have these little flashbacks and say, well, I've done it before. I've been ice climbing before. I, w- I faced my, you know, being out of my comfort zone and being uncomfortable, but I overcame that. So now I can overcome, uh, mm. overcome this next thing that I'm facing. Whatever it might and, be. And, and was that kind of a very conscious thing for you and all of your adventures every time that you were learning? Because you put yourself into some really arguably some really dangerous mm. situations along the way. Yeah. But you've just, you've always looked for the positive on the backside once you've made peace with it, yeah? Yeah, for sure. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that, actually. I barely remember the negatives. I only remember the negatives if I need to learn from them. Other than that, I remember the pain that comes with it, but I try not to let it stop me because mm. the positives far outweigh the negatives, you know? So I do know that, yes, you know, I take hiking, for instance, I'm going to get so many blisters, my toenails are going to fall off, I'm going to get major chafing, I might be stalked by wolves, I might be held up at gunpoint, all of the shit things that come with taking on a crazy expedition. But it's all of the highs, it's all the positives that I remember, it's all of those unique experiences that will help me grow, help me develop, and just understand the world and myself and meet people that I may only ever meet once in my lifetime. And uh, I push on. These... <sighs> I feel when I'm out doing something like that, mm. I feel alive. And it's right. it's it's almost like I go and do it and I'm I'm I mean I'm in nature, so I'm very happy in nature. Yeah. But I'm I, I feel alive. It's almost like you know, when I see people walking around barefoot and they're like, I need to be earthed. Mm. And I'm like, I don't really get that. I don't yeah. really understand that. I need to, you know, they're on the sand or the or the water. I need uh-huh. I need to and I need, I need this to be earthed. And I'm like, what does that really mean? Mm. Because for me, I've never needed that. You know, if I've got a pair of hiking boots on and I'm in the mountain, yeah, that that's for me. It's the, it's the wind, it's the smells, it's yeah, the, it's being the air. It's, it's get strength from the mountains, don't yeah. you? And so, and I, I feel sad for people that don't go and experience these types of things. Yeah. Now, whether it's a tuk-tuk adventure race, yeah. whether it's climbing in 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 Ecuador or climbing in Tupcala or where it might be, yeah. Okay. It's like when you go and experience these adventures, it does something to you. Mm. A a little example is in in the Dolomites last year, I I had my daughters with me and one of them said, Dad, can I come climbing with you? Nice. And they've got the, what's it called? The Via, Via Ferrata. Is it the Via Ferrata? Mm-hmm. It's the so the, uh, across the Dolomite Mountains, yeah. the, the First World War, the soldiers, yeah, okay, had to carry supplies over. Okay, so they put metal pegs into the mountainside, and those metal pegs in the mountainside gave them a way of uh, navigating the mountains. Yeah, now those metal pegs since okay have turned into climbing routes. Yeah, yeah, and so we went off with a guide and we climbed like okay. properly climbed up mm. the side, vertical cliffs and that kind of stuff. But we had the, we obviously had harnesses on and whatnot. But we spent, we spent the, 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 the three days climbing. And at the end of it, my, my daughter that was with me was like, this is really cool. 
that this it. is really cool. And I'm it. like, do you get it? Do you get it? You know? And I'm like, do you get it? Do you get what it feels like? Yeah. You're a bit scared. You know, you're a bit uncomfortable. You're very yeah. uncomfortable. You're doing something you don't know, you know, where your next foot should go and all that mm. kind of stuff, you know, what you should grab hold on. And so the heart rate's pumping, but you just feel alive. Yeah. Like truly alive. Yeah. And that's your addiction, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think that's just such a great addiction to have. One thing that stood out is, do you remember I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? Mm -hmm. Isn't it weird how there's sort of people from all over who have got very successful careers. They've reached the highest of heights sometimes in their careers, all the money in the world. Yet they come to the jungle in Australia or the Great Castle, which was up the road from me. <laughs> And they leave and they're kind of like, they, they, most of them say that was the best experience that they've ever had mm. from having all their luxuries taken from them mm -hmm. and just going back to the sort of bare basics of survival in a way and testing themselves and putting themselves out of the comfort zone and learning more about themselves. Before we continue with your story, talk to me about the dynamics of having, because when you take an I'm a Celebrity, there's a group of people. Mm -hmm. When I go on some of my adventures, yep. okay, I've got a group of people and the energy from those people and the stories and the banter and the, oh, look at that, and the little funny bits that take place. Yep. You know, someone farting in a tent or whatever uh -huh. it may be. Yeah. Um, that that brings joy to the experience. Yeah. When I've done stuff that, so for example, in, 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 in Ecuador, mm. I went over there for my, for my ice climbing training f so that I could do Everest. Yeah. I was with a guide on my own for two weeks. Okay. And he was teaching me. He's been to Everest 12 times. He's like, he was the guy teaching nice, me. Nice. Yeah. It wasn't as fun. Got you. I didn't have, you know, of an evening. Yeah. You know, sat in a tent or wherever we were sat of an evening. I just had him. And it was just me and him and our stories. And, and you know, there were there were no locals because we were on a mountainside. Yeah. You know, there's nobody up there. Mm -hmm. And so when you did see someone, okay, or some llamas <laughs> yeah. or something, you'd be like, hello. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so for me, I found it almost psychologically a bit tougher. Yeah. Because I didn't have that kind of like group support. For sure. In your experiences along the way, did that have an impact on you? I would yeah. yeah, I would say so. I would say so. In Mongolia, that was completely solo and unsupported. So mm. I was just by myself the whole way, other than locals that I might come across. But I think I went over eight days without seeing a single person at one stage. But I kind of prepared so well mentally for that, that it didn't phase me. And I realized I've got no one with me. Like if I had even friends with me, they would get niggled. You know, they would get annoyed. They would get angst. And I feel their mood would rub off on me. Whereas I'm quite a positive guy. So I didn't have the outside noise of trying to, people trying to get so me the down. the fears of the negativity? The what, sorry? The fears of their negativity. Almost, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was, it was that I was in Mongolia and I was just so focused on completing that expedition, so focused on the daily routine, on staying regimented, on getting the miles in, from waking up, having that shave, you know, a little routine to make the day feel good and just smiling, putting music on. You know, and, and getting through the days that I think if there was anyone else with me for that particular expedition, I just don't know if they would have been as upbeat and as positive. They'd be pointing out the negatives, the flaws, and maybe that mindset would have rubbed off on me. However, with future expeditions that I was with other people, it was a shared experience and it felt more fun, more enjoyable. And I had locals with me who could translate. So I was getting to know the locals along the way in Madagascar, for example, whereas Mongolia... It was just hand gestures and drawing in the sand. So what, so what did you do first? Mongolia. Okay, so before you describe the adventure, describe Mongolia. So Mongolia is, I think a lot of people 
mistake Mongolia for being, being very barren. You know, nothing really pretty to see there. Yeah. But um, they would be majorly mistaken. You've got the Altai Mountains in the west. You've also got the Eagle Hunters, which is a Kazakh tradition introduced to Mongolia, where they would be on horseback hunting down foxes or even things as big as wolves with an eagle perched on their arm, and the eagle will hunt, hunt, hunt it down. You've got the reindeer tribe, and these are white reindeers, and they live a different way. The locals up north, they live more in their teepee, white teepee tents. So you've got the reindeer tribes up north. You've then got the Gobi Desert. Of course, that's barren, that's mass land, but then you've got the camels, you've got the camel herders, and then you've got the Mongolian steppe. And I believe Wales, my country, you can fit into Mongolia 75 times. What? So it's a big fucking country. Okay. Big, big country. And it's, I think it's third, fourth or fifth most sparsely populated country in the world. Four million. So four million people living in Mongolia with a high majority of them living in the capital city, Ulaanbaatar. Uh And in Wales, the country that you can fit 75 times into, into Mongolia, you've also got four million people. Which is which is crazy. To Nuts, me. isn't it? Yeah, so it's very desolate. Okay, so why did the trip happen? What was the reason for doing it? What was the challenge? Why? So that trip, I think it was a, an accumulation of all the previous adventures that I was missing. You know, the Vietnam cycle, the time with the Burmese Hill Tribe. I then trekked the Himalayas again illegally, no permit, just went across the border there. Um, I was then cycling across Australia, female mountain bikes, costing $50 from Big W. I was hitchhiking. Uh, Australia, and then I settled down because money was running out as a master scuba diving instructor in Thailand for two years and a Muay Thai fighter. So that was my life for two years. And because, you know, it was a great life. It was fun. You know, there was was adventure. There was uh, extreme sports. There was fighting. There was training. There was all of that. But I started to get quite restless. You know, it was a bit mundane compared to all of the previous adventures I had. And I felt I was just, I was only 21, 22, living on a tiny little island, Koh Tao and Koh Lipe mm-hmm. in Thailand. And I didn't want to sell. And then I started to, you know, get curious of how far I could have pushed myself more on those previous adventures and how I did them all with a smile, despite the difficulties I faced. And then with that curiosity of knowing how far I can push, and by the way, I wasn't on social media. This was pure passion and love of adventure. That's when I then decided, well, why not do another adventure? Why not make it bigger, better? And why not do a hike? Because I didn't, hadn't done hikes, really. Done mainly cycles. Um, where I'm relying solely on myself to survive. Where I'll be self-sufficient in a country that is very extreme and that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And being in Thailand for two years, I was coming across uh, tourists ticking off scuba diving from the bucket list. I was teaching them, people from all over the world. And the main topic of conversation was travel. And I hadn't come across anyone who said that they've been or plan on going to Mongolia. So I started to get really curious about that country too. And then I thought, look, let's let's do a 100-mile walk across the country. And then it started to grow and develop, maybe 200, maybe north to south, until eventually I decided let's walk the entire length from west to east which would be three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, and a further three weeks through the Mongolian steppe, completely solo and unsupported. And when I say that, I mean my insurance was invalid. The whole expedition came to about five grand, which is crazy for a world first. And I would be pulling a trailer, carrying all of my provisions needed to survive, which is the same weight as a world heavyweight boxer, 18 stone, 120 kilograms, or 260 pounds. But... 
I had 200 pounds to my name. That's why I had saved in Thailand. And in order to, to actually make this happen, I needed to move back home, sell my diving kit. I moved back home with my parents in Wales um, with 200 pounds in my bank account. I couldn't afford no gym membership. So my uncle, who does um, sort of couriers by, by lorry, would drop off a tractor tire, uh, a sledgehammer, and I would end up doing all of my training for a world record in my back garden. At which point, I didn't really fully know it was a world record. I was just doing it for the pure adventure. It was only when I started to bring teams on board because I knew how dangerous this, this was and I knew I couldn't do it recklessly like I'd done Vietnam. Mm -hmm. This had to be legit because it was life or death. It wasn't a case of winning or losing. Or, and I then started to do research with other teams in Mongolia and in the UK, the Royal Geographic Society, the adventurists. We all came together and that's when we realized there's no evidence to suggest that anyone had completed um, a solo and unsupported walk across Mongolia but we did come across someone who had attempted and he claims to be the first to ever attempt it but it failed on all three occasions and was evacuated it was three attempts and I looked into this guy and he was he was a navy soldier he was a desert explorer um you know so ex-military in his I think he was late 30s early 40s and I wrote an email to him asking for a list of dangers to, you know, what I should look out for. Mm -hmm. And he got back saying, you've got the drunken nomadic drifters, the steep ravines, the dry wells, the stagnant water, the gray wolves, the snow blizzards, the sandstorms, and the list went on and on. It was at that point then that the fear was too big. And I just stopped looking into Mongolia. And I started to look at more European countries, you know, more of a population, safer. But then, you know, again, I realized just because no one's found a way to do it doesn't mean it can't be done. And if I apply the right training and the right method, the right logistics, you know, maybe, maybe I can do this. And it would be then a recorded world first. Um, and that's how it, that one came about. And so I was back at home now preparing and training for, for my first record. So were people encouraging you to do it or were people like, come on, mate? Yeah. There's probably other things you can do. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much encouragement for this expedition. My mum and dad were encouraging because they kind of knew that now that I'm set on it, they can't talk me out of it anyway. So mm -hmm. at least they can do is sort of mentally support me. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I found when I came back to the UK, I was trying to make as many contacts with people who had been to Mongolia and they were all just labeling it simply as impossible. People have tried, people have failed, and the locals think that it's stupid because the locals, of course, they've been crossing it for thousands of years, back and forth, Mongolia. Um, but ne not solo and unsupported. They take family members or friends, and they or they have yak, or they have camel. They do it the sensible way because you're going to die if you don't. Um, and I just received all of this news, and it really did sort of knock my confidence. I started to doubt myself. I had a lot of fear. The amount of nightmares that I had was was crazy. And it's mad because out of the three world records, I'd argue maybe this one was the smallest world record, yet it it played the most on my mind. And it held, I held the most fear with this one because I was no longer with my friend. Like we went cycling Vietnam. You know, it, was, it wasn't a case of we were on a road where there's people and if there's people, there's food, there's water, there's that safety net. I was going to be out there for 78 days. It was anticipated to take 100 days crossing alone, you know, and most... About 90% of man-hauling expeditions where they're pulling something behind them do fail. And I couldn't afford to have a trailer 
built in a factory, have it carbon fiber, have it solid. And so it was by a family friend that we knew who built it in his back garden and it was made of mild steel, meaning it was solid, but with no, nothing in it, it's, it's already 40 kilograms on an empty load. And so there was lots of reasons to have the doubt that I had. And I remember having nightmares of pack of wolves, you know, surrounding me in the tent and like just being there. Um, but I, I got over that. I really trained about three hours a day, every single day. And I was training physically to help myself to prepare mentally because I say it's probably about 30% physical and 70% mental. Um, and I just remember just shitting myself up. If there's going to be snow blizzards, expect them to be the biggest. If there's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. You know, every worst case scenario was like up there. Not because I wanted to face worst case, but it was like, well, if I was to face it, unfortunately, at least it wouldn't come as a shock or as a surprise. It would come as something that I was anticipating and that I expected. So now I must tackle it. Um, you know how someone, if you if you were walking out the door now and someone's hiding behind the corner, if they scare you, you're going to, oh, you're going to jump. You didn't know they were there. But if you know they're there, it, it doesn't have the same effect. It was almost like that. And I always told people that I don't know how to mentally prepare. There's no way to mentally prepare. But I think I did. And I only realized I did mentally prepare for, for this journey whilst I was on the journey. Whereas every challenge that hit me, it didn't surprise me. And I didn't feel sorry for myself. And I didn't, you know. Um, but again, with this one, you know, this was a, a world first. I saw this as maybe a change of my career. I didn't want to do scuba diving anymore. I remember counting the pennies just to try to get the boat to the next island to have a night out. And I thought, I, I can't be doing this. And so I wanted a bit of a career change. And I realized if this is a recorded world first, there's very few world firsts left, then maybe there's something there. So that's when I then had to come on on social media. And that's when through my previous travels the past couple of years, I had seen um, pollution levels and so now it was a case of let's raise funds for the nomads that will be coming across along the way and let's raise awareness about uh, global warming and the effect it has on the nomadic way, way of life. So this is where I had to sort of really bring in different things mm. as well and then I could really make it a proper adventure, proper experience rather than just doing it for the, for the sake of doing it. Yeah, there's something, there's something rather disappointing about knowing that you have to do it for a reason to make it work mm. rather than just, you know what, I want to do it because I want to do it. Yeah. But also if the flip side is that other people benefit exactly. from that, then there's an upside and there's a win. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about the trip then. So let's, let, let, let's go through it. Give, yeah. give, give me, give me the, 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 the highlights and the lowlights and. Yeah. So with this one now. So where did you start? I started in the Altai Mountains, far west of Mongolia. So the, what? What's that? Borders Russia. Yeah. The far west borders Russia. So you've gone. You actually got four borders there. You've got Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, and China. Okay. Well, I'm with you. I'm just going to look at the map. Yeah. So sure. I'll make sure I've got it right. Yeah. Okay. And so you're you set off from the most western city, called Olgi. Oh, okay. So Mongolia. Okay. Got it. So you you okay? Did borders Kazakhstan as well? Just doesn't it? There yeah. A point in the bit. Yeah, so yeah. You've got Kazakhstan, China, Russia, Kyrgyzstan as well. No, not Kyrgyzstan. So it's three borders, uh, three three points on the far west. Is there Russia there as well? Or yeah, is that Russia. Just... Russia's, yeah. Russia's above, and then you've got Kazakhstan and then China. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at the map right now, and so you've set up in the far west. Yeah. 
And then from big there, country. it's a big country, isn't it? Big country. And don't forget, I didn't have the funds to scout Mongolia, so I was there for the first time. I didn't go out and scout it and like look at the store and check out the land that I'll be hiking. I was on my own, flying on that plane, looking down at the land, thinking, where the fuck are the people? Where are the cities? Where are the towns? So if you start in the Altai, yeah. your Altai National Park. Yeah, you're about just over 3,000 meters altitude at that point. Oh, so you're in, you're in proper mountains? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go on then, tell me. And then from there, you start making your way southeast down across the Altai Mountains and into the Gobi Desert. And that takes about three weeks, I think it took, until I reached the start point of the Gobi Desert. And in the Altai, there was enough, I was told by the locals that I'd be eaten alive by the wolves. I was... So it's very, very remote, those mountains? Very remote. Very? Very. Cold? Very cold too. Okay. There were times I couldn't, I just couldn't set up my tent. I'd have to like literally a minute trying to set it up and then trying to heat up my hands and then another minute trying to set it up. And when you're going through the mountains, how are you able to pull a trailer? You're using goat tracks, camel tracks or any roads that you're able to come across okay. that the nomads use. Okay. Um, and that is how you're able to to get through the outside. Otherwise, it would just be impossible with a trailer. Yeah. Yeah, you'd need a, a rucksack. Uh, and then from So you're that, not following the most direct route. You're following a path. You're following a path. Yeah. yeah. You're on the, the road, I think, for first half a day and then it cuts off. And that was exciting as well. What, the road like, just stops? just stops. Like the tarmac, there's an end point. I took a picture of it. It's an end point and then it's just gravel. And then that gravel kind of splits off and it goes off in a direction that I don't want. And then you're following other tracks. And that's what the nomads will then use to get to the big towns from their mm-hmm. um, yurt or their goo, you know, the yes, white style yeah. tent. Um, and then from there, yeah, you're, you're pushing on. And I remember, I remember after about, it must have been a week and a half, that this is how far out there I was. I rocked up into a, it was one or two huts that I saw big mountains in the background. It was camouflaging. It was a hut now, not a white felt tent. So I rocked up and I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if they can provide me with any hot water. So they invited me inside and I was drinking some Kazakh chai. They were a Kazakh family. Um, and I was sipping on that, having some snacks and 45 minutes went by and I was like, right, it's probably time for me to, to crack on, make up the mileage. And as I went to tell the, the, the man of the hut that I'm going to push on, I caught him looking at me very weird, very strange. Um, like he was thinking or looking through me in a way. And then he looks at his, his wife, who sat on the bed, breastfeeding his, her child. And then he looks back at me, looks at her. And then like right there, right then, in hand gestures, he offered me his wife, literally points to us, joined us up and points to the bed. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't say no. I was like, you didn't say no. <laughs> I, I, no I mean, I was like, oh, my God. I looked at him. I looked at her. She looked at me. She looked at him. It was just this awkward exchange of looks going on. And then I put on a, a, a fake laugh and then he didn't laugh straight away. It took a few seconds and then he laughed too. And then I made a swift exit and she Ooh. continued to breastfeed. Whoa. <laughs> like, oh my God. And then I left and I was like, the fuck was that? Was that a wife offering that happened right there and there? Or am I leaving now and they're having a laugh about it? And they're like, oh, I thought we were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you never know. I'll never know. <laughs> I'll never know. I do know my logistics manager did say that that happens. It's very rare. Um, used to be more common back in the day. It was like regarded as but the let's, highest. Let, form of let's say it was them having a little laugh at your expense. Yeah, that, that's a better story. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> there I am, open along with my trailer. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Drinking his tea going, that bloody tourist. <laughs> what a donut. What a knobhead. <laughs> <laughs> all right cool oh. so so you've, you 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 but it's nice you've met people yeah you know? i was coming across um the locals and they were they were really nice in mongolia very hospitable very as you would say very friendly <laughs> <laughs> great comedians yeah great comedians and um i pushed on you know through the altamata and it was always sort of heart-wrenching i would say um leaving the locals because you never knew how long you would go before you came across more locals and you just remember feeling the warmth and mm. their generosity and just being dry and comfortable and then you're back out here in the mountains you know and these these mountains are covered in snow the wind you would see wolf footprints that was common and you're just kind of walking through you don't know where you're going to sleep that night um, you've obviously got ration packs. Everything that I needed to survive was on my trailer. That was my life capsule. But yeah, it always hurt in a way emotionally when I left locals thinking, mm. fucking hell, you know, when will I come across the next? And how many how many kilometers were you trying to get through a day to make it work practically? I, You know what? I worked out for the walking days. I was doing about a marathon a day. Okay. I was doing about a marathon a day. And this only popped up recently when someone asked me because I never really calculated because I wasn't, but then lots of people are doing lots of different marathons now. So I'm like, oh, that's an easy way to make the journey a bit more relatable for those who have done a marathon mm. or, you know, enjoy watching people do marathons and whatnot. I was doing about, it was uh, one and a half thousand miles um, the journey was altogether. And so I would, I would out, some days less, of course, some days more. Um, there, there was endless daylight from 5.30 in the morning up until like 10 p.m. So as long as there was daylight, I was I was walking. I was still, and it's no man's land, so you, there was never any problem pitching up the tent. What, what, what was the scariest thing? The scariest thing is probably when I finished my time in the Altai Mountains, I was probably slowly slipping into dehydration at this point because it was cold. I didn't feel the need to drink water. I should have forced it upon myself, but I didn't. And then I started to break into the Gobi Desert. And if anything, I was really looking forward to the heat of the Gobi Desert. I'd face minus 15, minus 20 degrees Celsius from being at that altitude and with the thin air and with the, the wind being relentless. My lips were now fully chapped. So even to drink out of my ration pack, let's say morning porridge, I've got my oats, I'm drinking out of the ration pack, there'd be a flow of pus and blood from my lips back into the ration pack. I'd have to ply my lips open in the morning. And so I was looking forward to the heat of the Gobi Desert. That was a big mistake. <laughs> The desert was much, much worse, and it started to exceed crazy temperatures, 40-plus degrees Celsius. I was now fully dehydrated after about, let's say, two weeks of the Gobi Desert. This is five weeks trying to cross solo mm. to support the Gobi Desert section. So people in Dubai that are watching and listening to this right now, we get 40 degrees, we get 47 degrees, So, we, yeah. but but we live, we live a life where when it's that, it's like, don't go outside. Yeah. And you're spending the whole day in it. I'm spending the whole day in it and I am wearing a shirt, I'm wearing gloves, the collar is popped, I'm wearing a cap, I'm wearing trousers, um, you know, and trainers. I'm also pulling a trailer that now feels like 500 kilograms because in this Gobi Desert section, it's a mix of gravel and soft sand. Mm -hmm. So the thin waterproof, uh, the thin puncture-proof tires that I had on the trailer were now sinking into the soft sand and I would have to lean almost 90 degrees completely forward just pulling it with the walking poles as well. And at this point, I was weaker, I was skinnier and now I slipped into severe dehydration. As the days went by, I started to 
um, become delirious and start to hallucinate. I, I remember almost feeling my organs drying up. I was desperate for water and one of the water wells was, was dry. And that's fine because we mapped confirmed and, wa- and unconfirmed water sources to get through the desert. But what I was supposed to do is top up at the confirmed enough to get me not to the next one, but the one after that in case one of the unconfirmed water sources doesn't have water or is stagnant or is dry. But that's a lot easier said than done after going through, you know, the desert, the heat, no natural mm. shelter, no breeze, no clouds in the sky. I was going through the water um, and I had a big 20 litre container in the trailer. And now I had, I don't know how many litres left, but I was sort of rationing the last remaining dribbles of water once I had found out that that well was dry. I realised that I've kind of missed the point of backup because I couldn't afford proper evacuation and my insurance was invalid because they don't um, insure people who were unsupported in Mongolia because mm-hmm. that's how that's how mad the place is. because maniacs do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so my only pickup was my agent who was based in Ulaanbaatar, the capital. And if he found me in time, I would need to allow at least three to four days for him to get to me and then another day or two to get me out. And I didn't believe I could survive five, six days. And so I'd missed the point of backup because I believed I could survive four days if I rushed the water and if I broke my goals down. And I know that the next community has, it's a community, it's got people, it's not a well, it's confirmed water source. Um, but at that point, I, I remember just lying on my back under the trailer, sometimes an hour at a time, my lips all chapped and like bleeding, feeling sorry for myself, walking past camel carcasses that had died of dehydration that were just out there in the middle and all sorts going through my mind. As I said, I was really delirious at this point, uh, thinking about my family, thinking about my friends and, you know, it was getting pretty dark. Um, I've always been a big believer of sort of like the law of attraction and visualization, not to the extreme level, but in a ways that it's helped me in the past. And at this point, I just couldn't visualize four days. I was in too much pain. You know, on top of the dehydration, I've got blisters. My toenails have fallen. I'm having to ply off my toenails. Um, No breeze, as I said. And I then figured out I'm going to have to do what I did in Wales when, you know, I sat down with my dad and we went through this mind map of how to break the goals down in order to achieve traveling altogether at the age of 19. I was 17 at that point, trying to plan for my travels, and we just broke down into lots of little steps. And I used that method. Didn't know that years down the line that would save my life, but I used that method whereby I couldn't visualize four days, but I could visualize 100 meters. You know, I could see 100 meters. So I decided to, to try to get out from under my trailer strap on the hot four-point harness, which was padded and fleecing, walk for 100 meters, 200 meters if I was lucky, and then rest under my trailer, but for no more than five minutes because I'd find I couldn't get out of my trailer for like an hour at a time. And then I kept breaking my goals down five minutes, 100 meters, five minutes, 100 meters, and eventually I did just about get out of the desert, make it to the uh, to the community, and I just remembered collapsing and I couldn't push on then for at least another eight days. It took me eight days to recover. My urine was black. I was having nightmares. I wasn't sleeping properly. My family back at home were obviously very concerned. Um, and so while you were in that community, you were just staying with the locals in a shelter? Yeah, I was staying put. And were they worried about you? They were. They bought their sort of equivalent of a doctor, some guy who 
nose dehydration. He came over. I remember him feeling my head and feeling like, fucking hell, who's there saying don't go outside? And I remember there was a shop. I don't think I've even mentioned this, but there was a, a little shop, almost like a, a, a nomad selling, fr- um, it wasn't even fruit, it was like pies and sweets. And I wanted to check out that shop and it was no more than 50 to 100 meters away. And I remember walking out of the shelter to walk there. I felt the sun and after five meters, I, I turned around. I, I just couldn't stand being in the sun for 50 to 100 meters, let alone, you know, the five meters that I had just walked. I was already turning back, went to the shelter. And I was trying to explain and ask the locals if they could see any fruit or vegetable. But of course, there's no fruit, there's no vegetable. So I had to try to eat dumplings and pies and just drink lots of water. They just had Coca-Cola. So it wasn't the best stuff to help me recover. But I had to make do with, with what I had and thank, you know, God that I'm here. I can't get bananas and oranges to you, but they can get a Coca-Cola to you anyway. They can get a Coca, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Was there was there a point there where you were like, I think it's time to turn it, give this up. I'll, you know, this is this is too much. I've I've I'm, I shouldn't be doing this. This is dangerous. Interestingly enough, there wasn't. At that point, I knew that I had passed the point where the previous guy was evacuated three times. That was the hard section right there, and I'd passed that. So I was telling myself it has to be easy ahead, easier ahead. And I remember my logistics manager, Rob Mills, Skyping me and he recorded that Skype. I've still got the audio. But he asked me, is there any way that I, you know, I'm thinking of stopping this? Like I've had a good go. And I just, I got too close. Let's end it there whilst I've still got my life. And I said, look, I'm in a bad place right now, mentally and physically. But even if I have to stay in this, in this community for a whole month or two months, I will stay here. I will recover, wait till I'm 100%. And I'm, I'm pushing on and completing this mission regardless. And I remember I listened back to that voice memo and thinking, fucking hell, that was some dogged mentality because mm. I, was, I was fearing the sun. I couldn't have even, I, 10 meters and that was it. I couldn't even go to the shop because the sun, I remember just coiling up, quivering back in my shelter, you know? And then he's asking if I'm going to go back out there when I've still got another four to five weeks remaining of the expedition. So in those eight days, you've banged, banged as much water inside you as you can. Yeah. You've got as much food inside you as you can. Yeah. You're feeling a lot better. Yes. Okay. And you know, you've got your strength and you're ready to go again. What's, what, what happens next? I then push on. I finish the remainder of the Gobi Desert and then I push on into the steppe. And the steppe is one of those that I was always looking forward to. But I don't know if it was the season or not, but I just got absolutely hammered by big fucking storms. They were terrifying. You would see like clouds coming over and it looked like a tsunami, fucking tsunami of like clouds and rain coming right towards you with fork lightning as well, hitting the ground and I'm pulling a metal trailer behind me. That was scary, but I do remember thinking, this is bad, but there's rain, there's water and I'm out of the desert, you know? And there was a lot more ammo pit vipers as well. More, more what? Ammo pit vipers, the snakes. And so I remember being cautious not to go in the long grass because if it's two or three days to get to me or three or four, then, um, and I stand on the back end of a snake, <laughs> three, four days is way too long. They weren't that venomous. They weren't that deadly, but it's a spite, they're, they're the snakes and they will, um, they can fuck you up. And so I remember that being the challenges of the step, but I was coming across. And what is people. the step? Describe what it's like there. The step in a way is like you're rolling hills of grassland just 
grass for as far as the eye can see. Sometimes really flat, sometimes just rolling hills. Um, no fences, so it's not fields of rolling hills, it's just grassland, no fences whatsoever, which was beautiful to see. I always say if you want to know what the world looked like like one, two thousand years ago, Mongolia is that place. Like you, you could just picture fucking dinosaurs being there as well, you know, 65 million years ago roaming the Mongolian steppe, you could almost picture it. <laughs> it's crazy. All right, cool. So you've got onto something that's much better than the Gobi Desert. You're enjoying that. Yeah. Pump snakes and challenges. And how, how many days are you walking through that? Through the Mongolian steppe. The steppe, yeah. That was about three weeks. Yeah, oh, so wow. It was three weeks over the Altai, five weeks roughly of the Gobi Desert, and then three weeks of the Mongolian steppe. But when you're in that steppe, you're like, I'm, I'm almost home. Yeah. So psychologically... You're, in a, good, you, you, you're you, in a good place. I can't fail now. Yeah. That's where the you mindset cannot, is. And that's also where the downfall is mentally as well, because you've kind of done it. You've you've overcome the wolves. You've overcome the 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 desert, the dehydration, the there's desert storms. You know, I faced many sand blizzards as well, and you kind of have achieved it, but you haven't yet. You've still got to put in a marathon a day for the two three weeks until mm. you finished, and that is like ugh, mentally you're kind of like yeah. Fucking done, really. Like, but you're not. <laughs> you still gonna yeah, push on. Yeah, it's, yeah, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. Like, yeah, you're you positive. You, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm almost there, and then yeah. all of a sudden, it's like I mean, three weeks of doing a marathon a day is monster anyway. That one is a week of doing marathons is monster yeah. on its own. Yeah. Okay. So, and um, were there people along that way as well? Did you meet people? Yeah, more people in the step. Yeah, and they were just yeah, again, they were just incredible, you know. And I was coming across more towns now too. So, um, so you've been away nearly three months. Three months. Yeah over in terms of that I was out there, you know, sort of trying to plan. I was out there only for about a week or two weeks before I then ventured over to the is West. Is there anywhere else on earth that you've been to that is even remotely like Mongolia? Um, the far west of China, Tibet area, I would say is similar. Totally different, definitely, definitely different, but I would say that is also very similar. And people are always shocked sort of to hear that because you think of China, you think of cities, you think of high population, but the West is it's wild as fuck. I would argue that actually in the West of China, when, I, when it was myself, two other guides and a horse, I almost felt more vulnerable and lonely than I did doing a solo trek across Mongolia, but we'll get onto that. Mm, let's talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Okay, so you get to the end of this Mongolia trip. How many how many kilometers or miles have you done? It was over 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles, so more than 2,000 kilometers. Yes, You've literally gone on your own, faced all this kind of stuff. Now, when you get finished and you get back, yeah. You're like that, oh, you know, you're like, like, I can do anything. Is that how your mind is at that moment? It's like, like, you know, you tried me, okay, I chewed you up and I spat you out, sunshine. (laughs) It is, yeah. Yeah, it's like, like, I now know. Because like, for me, it's like within business and and other things that we experience in life, it's once you've done a skydive, you've done a skydive, it can't be undone. So the next time you do a skydive, you know what to expect. Once mm-hmm. you've done a bungee jump, it's like you can't undo a bungee jump. Exactly. Once you learn how to ride a bike, you can't unlearn. Yeah. And so with that experience, it's just like I've just put myself through the toughest challenge of my life. I've been through extreme pain. I've been through terrifying areas where I could have been eaten alive. I've lived off the land, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You can't unlearn that. You can't. That gives you immense confidence and immense self-belief as well, especially because I was so shit scared of that expedition. And are you now a something? Are you now an adventurer? Are you now a bona fide um, 
what's this title that you would give yourself, you know? This, who am I? How would you identify yourself at that point? Oh, I'm, I, still, I still get confused with that. I, I call myself adventurer or explorer or extreme athlete or three-time world first record well, what, what, what are you, but, but you're somebody then because I remember when you're younger yeah. you're excited about this yeah yeah. then you go and do this cycle trip and you're like right this is an adventure I really want yeah now you've gone to like the, the super ultra crazy ridiculous adventure yeah, yeah. Now, now you essentially there's 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 a stake in the ground. Mm. That Ash Dykes is is somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is that yeah. I'm, I'm 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 saying it as if no. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. It's kind of like I cemented my name in almost the history books, right? Because it's yeah. it's a world it's first. A world record, yeah. And so you kind of, you know, I'm I'm always very humble about it. But at that point, I did get back and I was like, fuck. But I also had more unanswered questions. I was like, how far could I have pushed? Could I have kept walking? Okay, but was that that's really interesting. So the psychology of that is that does that eat away at you, or is it just a little question you ask yourself occasionally? Yeah, I would say it's a little question that I ask it when I when I look back and look at the challenges, and especially when I tell other people the challenges, I would always say it quite flippantly. You know, sometimes I, I talk about the challenges with a, with a smile on my face. You know, and then when I see their reaction to that. And then when I hear other stories, you know, God forbid, but of, of people dying after a day of heat stroke and then realizing I was in the desert pulling a trailer for five weeks, mm-hmm. you know, but, but that, that worst case scenario, it was like four or five days like, without wanting to push the limit and, you know, then it would be suicidal. I'm kind of like, I wonder if I could have pushed further. What goes first, the mind or the body? I would say the mind is first to give up and the body will actually push itself through what the mind tells it to push itself through. So we've got the famous David Coggins that talks often about that. Mm. I've got a friend of mine called Adam Madul who was um, hooked on drugs and fat, used to work for me, fat, lazy and just going nowhere in life. Right. And... I'll show you the pictures after. Yeah, yeah. But Adam Adam went from 100 and whatever it is, 20 kilos maybe, and he read David Coggins' book, Can't mm-hmm. Hurt Me. And he read that book and it became his Bible. Wow. And he's completely changed. He's a completely different human being to how he yeah, was before. Like, like completely different. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I'm so proud of him. Okay, and he'll go. And last week he was running on hundred miles or whatever it was, and he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, and he's like, literally talking to the camera. And he's like, yeah, it hurts like hell. Yeah, I know that, but it ain't gonna beat me, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's just to see this guy. I mean, the Coggins thing. I don't think any of us kind of knew him. If you read the book, you know the story. But if you haven't read the book, mm. you just see him as this crazy, super tough, super fit guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Adam, I knew this fat lazy drug addict yeah and so to see this fat lazy drug addict then become transform his life yeah majorly yeah um and and you know li- live a life that he lives right now is something i admire greatly you know because yeah. i love that i love that transformation yeah you and and for me it's like when i listen and to you and i understand your story it's like the psychology of it is it's the bit that fascinates me yeah it's like that what you're prepared to put yourself through mm why you're prepared to do it mm-hmm. okay is it is it is it because there's something deep down somewhere 
that's happened in your head, in your heart. Because if we look at other great explorers, yeah. I mean, I've had many of them on the show. We've got Ranulph Fiennes. He was, you know, he was fantastic as yeah. an explorer, yeah. you know. But he had this, he was in the military and he was, he was, he had ants in his pants, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he was just this restless nutcase, you know, <laughs> climbing up and down the buildings in the in the yeah. forces and whatnot, getting himself in trouble. He was over in Oman, and again, you remember yeah. the story that goes with that. And and you're like, it was almost like he he would seek danger, mm. you know, or you know, put himself in a position that was really risky. Because he he felt like he was alive in those moments. Yeah. You know, you know the story about him cutting his fingers off yeah. and it gets frostbite. It's like yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm yeah. sitting there and I'm doing the buttons up on his shirt <laughs> with the mic going down the front of it. And I'm sitting there, he goes, Oh, could you do the buttons up? And he's like his like fingers yeah. missing. And he yeah. goes, I can't get them done. And I'm like, why can't you get them done? He's like, look. <laughs> Mental. And it's just like when when you meet people like that, it's like, what is the driver? Mm. You know. And and everyone has their story and they're different. You know, why do I go and do this stuff? My wife thinks I'm mad. Yeah. You know, and I don't do anything compared to you, but it's just like, I, I need this. It's almost like soul food for me. Yeah. And if, if I don't have it, I feel like there's some part of me that's missing. Yeah, right. Yeah, I get up on a Saturday morning and we go hiking in Dubai and we go hike on the mountains and stuff. Yeah. And there's some great hikes, but it's hot. Yeah. So we have to get up early. Yeah, right. And so we get up at 2.30, 3 o'clock and we get out there for 4 o'clock and we start hiking because mm. two things, we want to see the sunrise and we want to be out there before it's too hot. Yeah. But you've got people look at you and they're like, yeah, but why'd you do it? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. what's the matter with you? Yeah. You know, why don't you just go do something else? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, but it's great because you're out in nature and the rocks are really sharp and the edges are really sharp. It's a bit dangerous, and, you know, <laughs> and you're coming down and it's really challenging and tough. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but they're, they're, why? Yeah. There's always this why. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah, sure there that, is. that people ask you. Yeah. Why? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, always, it's always difficult because I think it's many different whys. I don't think I can hit the nail on the head with, with one why. I think you put it like really well before is that it could be accumulation of lots of different things and I do think that's from when we're born it's almost everything that happens to you along the way and how you react to it will mold the kind of person that you're gonna you're gonna be when you're older so it's a case of there might have been stuff that's happened in the past where I've just been like oof I like the danger to it or I like to push myself or I like the endorphin of, of running or you know I like to uh, I enjoyed overcoming that challenge, even though my mum or dad said I can't do that, and I did it anyway. You know, it could be something like that. I have no idea, but in my mind, I think as to why I do it, I think it has got to do with. And I always had, I was always very level-headed growing up. From a young age, I always had these thought of sort of vivid thoughts and this imagination of, of knowing how short life is, even at the age of 14, 15, it wouldn't scare me, but I would just, I would, I would almost just clocked on knowing that we've only got this one life mm. and it's, it's going to be short. How do you choose to spend that time? And one year can go fast before you know it. It's five years before you know it. It's a decade. What how, did you how do old are you? I'm 32. Okay. That's really unusual for someone of your age to right. say. Yeah. Okay. When you get to my age, mm. I'm 53. When you kind of get to like your mid midlife, yeah. you go into, and that's why they call it a crisis. You go into a place where you're like, hold on a minute. This is going really quick. 
Yeah, right. And you have this realisation when you get older. When I was your age, no, but when you get older, so it's really unusual for someone mm. of your age to go, we've only got one life, because you're talking like me. Yeah, got you. But I've got the benefit of those years of experience. I've got the benefit of those years going quicker and quicker and quicker. Right. I've got the benefit of knowing that's the fact. Mm. You've not lived it yet. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that you can say that, I think is really, really important. Mm. I can say it, I feel it. I'm like, shit, man, my life's, my, I, I'm going to be too old to do anything. It's like with this Everest thing, I put it off because of COVID and whatnot. Yeah. And it's like, I've only got a few years to do this now. Got you. Okay, I know the oldest person to climb Everest, I think, was 82. Yeah. Okay, which is yeah. nuts. Okay. But the reality is for most of us, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to be safe until I get into my late 50s to, to, to be attempting it realistically. Right. Now, that is not far away. You know, we're already yeah. six months into this year. Mm. You know, it's not far away. But you're 32. You've got this like huge <laughs> life ahead of you, and you're like, yeah, life's short, man. No, we've got to be got to be careful to to, to enjoy every minute. You know, we've got, we've got yeah. to experience everything. We've got to feel everything every yeah. day. Yeah. And I credit you for that because yeah. um, you know, I would love to have had that mindset when mm. I was your age and to have that kind of foresight. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's really important. It's, it is it's really I think, valuable. I think it is, and I think a lot of people think. Because people try to dig deep into the psyche, like why? And they expect there to be some traumatic story because normally it takes something traumatic to, it was it was like my friend, uh, my best mate who joined me on the travels. He was going to just go to college, but then he got into a car crash. And out of how many people, one, two, three, there were four. He was the only survivor. Wow. And then after that, I, it was such a bad crash. The fire brigade couldn't even recognize what car it was. Um, but it was after that, something clicked within him and he was like fuck i want to i want to live i want to go out there i want to do everything i want to try everything but i would i didn't need to you know face something that traumatic to understand that i want to spend my life collecting experiences so everyone everyone imagines that you've had a trauma mm, yeah. and you get asked that question yeah. you know what was your trauma you know like, i didn't get a trauma <laughs> yeah. i just loved it you know it. it was just yeah. like i got a chance to live my life the way i wanted to on my terms yeah. okay well that 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 doesn't come necessarily from a trauma that comes from uh, a deep desire to be connected to something mm. And that that what you witnessed as a young boy, okay, whether it was the Attenborough stuff or, you know, being out in nature, there was a deep desire to be connected to it. Yeah. A great example of that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So Reg Park was the guy that Arnold Schwarzenegger was motivated by. Okay. So this, this Reg Park was this guy on a pedestal and he's like, I want to be like him. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be like him. And if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah, and so this you. Reg Park was like it was like a poster. Yeah, you know, there's the 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 strongest man in the world, and and he's like, I want to be like Reg Park. So he didn't come from this massive trauma. Yeah, life was poor, and he, you know, in Austria there wasn't much going on. He was yeah. out in the village. Yeah, but you know, he went into the military, ran away from the military to go and do a competition mm. to you know to be the, the, his first ever you know bodybuilding yeah. competition, and he was just like, I want to be Reg Park. I want to be in the movies, wow. you know. And he had a dream, and he's like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And he just found a way to get it done. That's so you know, cool. I didn't know that about him actually. Oh, yeah. it's a good. So he's he's, awesome. he's got an incredible story. Yeah, he so has. Yeah, he, he joined the military while he was in the military. Yeah. The, the the bosses in the military while he was there knew that he wanted to be a bodybuilder, yeah. so they helped him. On the tanks, they put free weights. 
oh, in the tank so he could do his workouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they gave him, they made him work in the kitchen so that he could pocket more meat and protein God, yeah. and so he could lift yeah, more weights and stuff. And so it was wow. all, there was all that, these people that, that were indirectly supporting him, you know, yeah. you're going to work in the kitchen, boy. Yeah. Like that. It's like, yeah, okay, the kitchen, The guys, the, the engineers were like welding free weights together and whatnot and giving him stuff to do his body. His work, 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 work. And while he was locked in there, because he did, so, when he ran away to go and do the first competition in Stuttgart, yeah. he came back and like, you're in trouble. You're going in the hole. And I've been in the <laughs> hole, you know. And they left him in there. Free weights. they put to chairs work. in there for him yeah. to do dips in and <laughs> stuff like that, you know. That's so cool. So so these kinds of stories fascinate me. And uh, mm. I, I love, you know, Arnie's like, and then Reg Park and then movies. You know, yeah. and he goes through his auditions. They're and like, he, and they're he like, smashed you, it all. No, because they're like, you don't even speak English properly. Yeah, yeah, they did. I, I remember yeah. that actually. Yeah, they I, laughed at his accent, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what, what are you gonna do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I want to be. I want to be yeah. a movie star. <laughs> and you imagine Fuck, that? Yeah. So I, I, I really am fascinated by. Because it's always, you know, you go back to someone raising money for charity, they think so much bigger. You take Maria, the lady I spoke about earlier. Yeah. You know, she she had a why that was very serious, very powerful, yeah. and everything was an obstacle to the why. Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay, he, his why was, Reg Park, I want to be Reg Park, yeah. you know, I want to be, I want to be. Yeah, and, yeah. and then there's you, it's like, what was your trauma? You know, mm. what did you suffer? Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just got so excited about something yeah. that you were like, this is my destiny. Mm. This is how I'm going to live my life. Yeah. And and we're given the great fortune by by grace and some planning, yeah. okay, and and some then self belief from results, yeah, okay, because again you didn't start the big ones, you did the Cambodia thing, you did the Vietnam thing, exactly. That's 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 cementing self belief, isn't those it? Track habits, isn't it? It's starting Absolutely. from the bottom of the ladder, which everyone has to start at mm. in any career, yeah, and working your way the little steps. Yeah, if, if I attempted Mongolia without the previous adventures, I would have died. That's exactly full it. on. Exactly. Okay. But that's cool, cool spin you put on that because no one has really said that before or very few people have put that spin on because it because like people you can't then. understand why you do it yeah because they need to think that something bad has happened yeah. to you to you know and for most people it has been and for most the, the it reaction has. of something yeah yeah but Randolph finds it wasn't either no I think he literally said he had bills to pay and that was what he was fucking great at wasn't it <laughs> it was like yeah he, I mean, he's great I mean yeah. I've had Chris Bonington and other people on there as well Kenton Cool was on there he's been up Everest 16 times yeah he has hasn't he and yeah. I'm like You've been up 16 times. He's like, hey, I'm like, I mean, you've done it enough. He's like, he's like, no. no. And it's not like, hey, draw me. It's just like, I want to do it some more. I want to yeah. do it some more. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you get these people, it's like, it's like, what's your why? Mm. What's your why? And it's just like, why can't the why be joy? Mm. Right. Why can't it just be, you know, deep-seated joy? And yeah. so many people in life just exist. Yeah. They go through life, they go through the motions, they get to their retirement age, they've got 2.4 kids, they get the carriage clock from the company. Yeah. And it's like, what did your life mean? Mm. And for me, it's really powerful what, what goes on the grave. It's the time you date you were born and the date you die. And there's that little line, okay, that hyphen. Yeah. What does it stand for? You know, what does it stand for? Yeah. What does it really stand yeah. what, what, you know, when, when you die, whenever you die, there will be for eternity stories about you mm. forever because you were the first to do these things. So like Edmund Hillary and Everest, they're, they're, there's a first yeah. and you did some of these firsts. Mm. So forever, in some communities, in some parts of the world, Ash Dykes did something yeah. that will stay forever. Crazy. Yeah, think Crazy. about that though. Yeah, forever. Mental. Forever. 
And so that hyphen that sits between the date you were born and the date you die, that means something. Yeah. Okay. And for different people, it's different things. Okay. But for most people, it's nothing. Yeah. You yeah, know? exactly. And you don't you want know? to be, I saw, a, I had a quote actually on my wall whilst I was um, saving the money in lifeguarding, 16 to 17 to 19. I forgot how, you'll know the quote. I forgot who it, who it was, but it go, it, it's something like life shouldn't be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving in an attractive and well-preserved body, but it should rather be to slide in sideways, covered in scars, body battered, thoroughly used up, screaming, yahoo, what a ride. Yeah. And I remember I had yeah. that because uh, I had this dream. I didn't know it was a dream board back then. I was only like 16, 17, but I put a world map on. And then I had lots of different quotes. And then I had lots of different sort of images ripped out from magazines of different parts of the world, like the Great Wall of China and whatnot. And that was one of them. And another one was you shouldn't, the biggest danger in life is not doing what you want to do now in the bet that you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. I love that. And I was all about that. I remember thinking, yeah, because everything changes. I might be 19 now, you know, sort of looking to travel for the first time ever. And I, I want to eat tranchlet. I want to do the world's highest bungee jump. I want to cycle Vietnam now. But if I hold back 10 years, 15 years, wait to earn a little bit of money, I'm not going to want to eat tranchula because I'm going to know more about the environment and I don't want to help to promote these people killing you know, animals, insects or whatnot. I don't want, I might not be bothered about doing the world's highest bungee. Just any bungee would be great. You know, I, I might not cycle Vietnam. And if I do, I'll do it on a very good bicycle. Mm. You know, you've got to do it now because everything changes. Your whole mindset, your psyche, you'll have more money so you can afford better things then. And sometimes the greatest stories come from when you have nothing, but you find a way to make it happen regardless. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. We'll take a little bit more time because I want to go through these other challenges. Yeah, man. <laughs> so next challenge after Mongolia. Madagascar. Now, Madagascar's, I, I've watched the world's toughest prisons. Okay. And there's a, there's, there's a prison in Madagascar. Right. And it wasn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about what, what, I mean, look, you're going to have people that remember it because there's been a cartoon. Cartoon, yeah, the movie. And yeah. they think that it's all a lot different to the reality. <laughs> but what's Madagascar like and what's dangerous about Madagascar? Madagascar is the fourth largest island in the world. And what attracted me was not only the high population of people there, that's 20, over 24 million people living on the island, but also the fact that over 80% of plant life and wildlife found on that island is endemic. Unique to the place. Unique to the place found nowhere else in the world. So most things that I was coming across during the day, at night, whatever, I wouldn't see outside of this island, which was insane. And another draw to it was the fact that I loved the locals of Mongolia and I would go over a week sometimes without seeing any. So the next place, again, because I'm all about that local culture, meeting people, learning the traditions, I wanted to come across more locals more frequently. Um, and Madagascar, you're right, one, it's one of those that features in a lot of people's minds, but people don't really go there. Yeah. And if they do go there, it will be to the coast, you know, where there's nice resorts when you're on the beach, when you can do scuba nice diving. And stuff? Yeah, up north, there's nice resorts. There's a place called Nosy Bee, and that's where you're, you're able to... When I say nice resorts, it's not like five-star, your Maldives, but, yeah, but there is... Um, you've got your scuba diving, free diving, you can go off kayaking, but that's such a tiny percent that like makes up for three percent. What's the language spoken there? Malagasy. Malagasy. Yes. Okay. So uh, Antonavaro. Uh, Antonavaro. An, an, 
Antananarivo. Antananarivo. Yes, Criminal, that's the capital. Yeah, it is. People okay, call so, it Tanner so, for short. So what, what do they call it? Tanner for Tana short. For short. Tell, tell me about the adventure. So this expedition was a 1,600-mile journey, and although only 100 miles longer than Mongolia, it took me almost double the duration, 155 days. Why? Because this was from the most southern point to the most northern point via the island's interior following a mountainous ridge that runs pretty much central of the island and the entire way, summiting the eight highest mountains whilst also having a machete in hand hacking through the jungle. Okay. So it was full on. Madagascar is one of those, I swear to you, out of the 155 days, I cannot pin down or remember there being one day that was just a nice, pleasant, simple day's hike. It was relentless, fucking relentless. Day after day after day, there was always something from being held up at gunpoint by the military, from avoiding bandits, from plying leeches that have been sucking your blood, six, seven of them for weeks on end at night before you go for a good night's sleep. There's spider bites which infect and then you can pull the aloe vera and hoping that, you know, they, they disinfect from hunting to gathering uh, from crossing crocodile-infested rivers, from catching the deadliest what strain did, of did malaria. Did you, did you eat off the land? Yeah, up north oh, especially. Man. Down south, you were all right. You'd come across more locals. And this was different. So this wasn't a solo and unsupported like Mongolia. For Mongolia to be a world record, I couldn't have just walked across it because that had already been done. The record there was to do it solo and unsupported. However, in Madagascar, it was simply to just walk from south to north, the entire length via the interior. Um, some into the eight highest mountains whereby people could actually join me. How many people went with you? I took one guide for the southern section that knew the south, a different guide for the middle section, and then a, a different guide who was a pop, proper sort of bushman. That was a survival for the north of Madagascar. And again, the diversity there was just insane. It was constantly evolving, constantly changing along route. It was very impressive. It was a, it's a beautiful place. Very beautiful. But, you know, since I finished that expedition, we reached, I think it was over three, four hundred million people worldwide. And so the tourism minister called me back and made me ambassador for the for Madagascar tourism. Um, and so I'm supposed to promote it and shout well about it. And I do. It's a beautiful place. Central and north is the safest. Down south is fucking dangerous. Really? Yeah, it's dangerous. I was told not to go down south people. by the locals themselves. People says. People, yeah. The people you, were dangerous. And even, yeah, and even on the route down south, because I had to go from Antananarivo down south um, to Fort Dolphin all the way down to Cap St. Marie, which is the southern tip. Uh, any further south there is like just Antarctica is the next, you know, the next place you're hitting. Um, and on that route, I remember seeing buses that were just shot flamed um i remember hearing the amount of deaths along the way or the amount of communities that had been hit up and burnt down by bandits and it was it was like something from the wild wild west it was it was insane um and so we set off from the south and it was a, it was a hell of an adventure we came across a community that for the younger generation it was their first time ever seeing a white person and so they would be very cautious to get too close 
because the myth there, they're very superstitious. It's like if you touch a, a white person, you'll blow up into, into smoke. And so if you go towards them or go to shake their hand, they're, they're like, they're just studying you, looking at you, they're like, we'll avoid you. And then as we walked further, we got wind that the, the, that there's the military and the military down south can be very corrupt. And so we utilized the forest area to hide from the military, but then we realized that the bandits are also using the, the forest to hide from the military. So we were like, well, what do we want to face, bandits or military? So we exited the jungle and I came across a military officer, AK-47 over his shoulders. He looked at me, he growled at me. Uh, he was wasted. And then he's there, he's got me at gunpoint. Me and at this point, I had two guides with me. So it was me, me, which is one of my guides' names, and <laughs> Joe. So it was me, me, and Joe. <laughs> and this guy, I remember just looking, demanding, asking for my passport. It was all translated to me. But his strap kept slipping off his shoulder and he kept catching this AK by the trigger with the barrel pointing at me and my guides. I remember we were just stood there like fucking trying to avoid him. We were looking at each other thinking, we might have to try to tackle this guy down. It, it's getting that serious. He's that wasted. We might act, have to physically hold him, hold him down because wow. we thought that his, his reactions would have been slow and we could get to him, you know, grab the barrel, wrestle him down. Uh, but then two sober officers came by and they were still, it took a while. I think altogether it was about 15 minutes. And then a crowd started to form. And then a local tries to get past the crowd to, to fight me. He's got his fists up trying to break past and the locals are like pushing him back helping me, you know, whilst I'm trying to deal with this officer that's got a gunpoint. And he wanted to fight me because he thought I was I was French and they don't like the French there. The French used to occupy Madagascar over 60 years ago and they used to be pretty brutal in the bush. And so the French people have a hard hard time in, in Madagascar. Do they speak French in Madagascar? Malagasy um, is actually formed of partially French. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, the second language there is French too. Is La Reunion far from there as an island? Uh, yeah, it's close. It's close to yeah. there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, really close. That's French, isn't it? It is French. I think that's uh, east of the island. Yeah. Yeah, okay. east of the island. She did this trip further than Unabatur, another world record broken. Yeah. Enough. So, You've done enough. That's yeah. right. You've done enough. Yeah. Well done, man. Good. High five, everyone. It's like, yay, <laughs> yay. Okay, yeah. I am now somebody. I've now done two. There can be nothing taken away from me. I'm a legend. <laughs> <laughs> enough, right? You would think that. Go put your feet up and yeah. chill out. Go on the telly. Go on Jonathan Ross. Go on Joe Rogan. Do yeah. your stuff. Do yeah. your circuit. Do your thing. <laughs> Come on the Spencer Lodge podcast. All right, you're done. <laughs> done. But no. But no. But no. Um, and again, Madagascar was one of those where it was, um, I, I contracted malaria in Madagascar. Right. I was actually not even halfway through and I got the deadliest strain of malaria. Um, and I got it at the time that there was a village that suffered with the bubonic plague. Jesus. There's the plague still out in Madagascar in, in um, rural communities. So we stayed in our tent. Um, they said, don't come out because they've got animals, the fleas, the plague, the relatives have died there. But we were thirsty, we were hungry, they fed us up. But what they gave us was this pretty rotten eel. And we ate the eel, and for the next few days, we were suffering with, with diarrhea. So the anti-malarial pills going out one way, you know, going in one way, out the other. I didn't have my full dose, and I would remember I was hiking through Madagascar with malaria. Uh, and it, it eventually, you know, kind of long story short, it hit me so hard, it sent me back to the Gobi Desert of what I was feeling, signs and symptoms, completely delirious, hallucinating. Fuck. Um, and I remember being strong and, and, you know, capable to not even being able to pick up a glass of water. 
you know, I just managed to stand up. It took 45 minutes just to stand up. This is when we'd already reached a community that had overland transport. I said to me, my guide, we need to go to the nearest city. Got to the city and the doctor took my blood and she came back and said, you've got falsiparum, which is the deadliest strain. And if you were a few hours later, you would have slipped into a coma and potentially died. And that was a, that was a huge scare. And that was one month. But after that, what hit me again, because... You know, I was the fortunate one to have the money, which is cheap, to be able to eradicate the disease and eradicate it fully. You've got four strains. The three lower ones, as you, malaria can remain dormant in your system, but the deadliest strain, it usually kills you within 24 hours. But if you catch it, it will be eradicated fully out of your system. So I eradicated that, held on for about a week, lost like 13 kilograms in that time, and then had to push on another four months to complete Madagascar. Um, and I faced lots of other challenges through that crocodile infested rivers. I had to carry a, do you know about Gertrude, the chicken? <laughs> Gertrude, the chicken was, um, it's, it's traditional, it's culture that in order to summit the highest mountain on the island called Maramakocho, you must take yourself a white chicken, um, protect it, feed it, give it water. And in return, that protects you from the bad spirits and witches of the rainforest. The locals are very superstitious. They really believe in witches and, and, um, and bad spirits. And so again, I'm all about respecting the local culture. I got myself a white chicken. I named it Gertrude, Gertrude the chicken. And for, <laughs> for the next two and a half weeks, I had to feed him. I had to water him. He became fully domesticated like a dog. And eventually was his freedom day, two and a half weeks on top of the mountain where we, we, we released him and we ca carry on. So we, I faced all of these crazy challenges, all of these mad stories. You know, a photographer joined me and we all, she almost lost her life on that trip, but we overcame them. That after that, there was, there was still that underlying question, of course, you know, what, what next? What, um, what a mad experience, a lot learned, many lessons taken. And one of the harshest lessons I took from Madagascar was when we were in the jungle, machete in hand, hunting, gathering, hacking through the bushes. We would cover maybe two miles, if we were lucky, in 16 hours of walking. And we hated it. We had spiders, leeches. We had no, no food at some point because there was only so much that our hunting could take us. We were hungry, thirsty, fucking miserable, hated the jungle, didn't want to be there at one point. And it was at that point I realized that no matter, no matter what you're doing in life, you can't always be motivated, but you can be disciplined. Mm -hmm. And I broke my goals down again, like the Gobi Desert, hacked 50 meters at a time till eventually we broke out of that, um, that jungle, made it to the end, what, 1,600 miles later, 155 days. And I was, you know, back home, became um, ambassador for Malaria No More UK and was able to address parliament and government to help increase the amount that they were putting into the global fund to help um, save lives and cases from malaria. And it was me and Annie Lennox from Eurythmics. Mm -hmm. So we were presenting and it was a joint effort. We managed to secure an extra 20%, which took it to 1.2 billion pounds, helping to save 8 million lives and cases over the next five years from, from malaria. And I think it was this, this sort of positive spin that I was putting on all of these negatives and so I came back with a huge high. I didn't really have time to reflect on all the craziness that happened. It was just like win after win after win. I slipped right into planning the next big thing, which was by far the most ambitious. And ridiculous. And ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you tell everybody what that was. 
So that one, the biggest one that I've done so far, maybe ever, but so far I like to say, is a, to, I became, in 2019, I became the first person to walk, hike the entire length of the Yangtze River, which is the single biggest river to run through a single country and the third longest river in the world. It runs across China from the Tibetan Plateau at over 5,100 meters, 15,000 feet, similar to Mount Everest Base Camp, and runs for 4,000 miles across the country until it pours out into the East China Sea in Shanghai. And that was 352 days to complete. <laughs> Another mental one. <laughs> so you go away for a year to walk along one of the longest rivers in the world. Yes. <laughs> Where does the idea come from? It's like, you, 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 okay, it's televised, loads of stuff been reported on you. But, what, what, I mean, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I live in Dubai, and in Dubai we've got these islands mm -hmm. called the Palm, okay? Yeah, I know them. You know them, yeah? Yep. I live on the palm. Oh, nice. And I look at them and I'm like, what were they smoking? <laughs> yeah. Because I think yeah. before, before this was a thing, someone must have said, I've got an idea. Why don't we build an island in the shape of a palm tree? Yeah, what the fuck? Out in the sea there. Why don't we do that? What do you reckon, guys? No, no. And someone else has gone, let's do three. <laughs> It's because someone's come up with an idea. And it's yeah. like, no one would have thought of that until someone had an idea. Yeah. And probably half the room went, stop smoking that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And the other half of the room were like, uh, this is wacky, man. Let's give it a try. <laughs> Sign that, the that's, that's kind of like what I pictured. Because yeah. when these types of things happen, you're like, what were they thinking to yeah. come up with an idea so extreme? So what were you thinking? With that one, I was thinking when I was 19... I was in China. I spent two weeks in China before I then ventured to Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. I then looked back on the map and looked at how fucking big China was as a country and felt embarrassed. I, how, how can I say I've traveled China? You know, when I skirted from Beijing to Shanghai to Hong Kong, just along the most eastern coast there, and China was fucking huge, yeah. massive country. So I always wanted to return to China. I didn't know what for and I didn't know when but I knew that I would want to take on an adventure. And river walking seemed to be a bit of a thing. You know, you had Ed Stafford, first mm -hmm. person ever to walk the Amazon. Mm -hmm. You had Lev Wood, first to walk the Nile. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Yangtze, the third, the third biggest river in the world. Mm -hmm. But through a country that is so unknown. Mm -hmm. You know China for its cities, for its political views for its government you know but china in terms of its diversity in all of its provinces in all of its dialects just how fucking wild it is mm -hmm. with its nature with its wildlife it's and i just thought that would be such an interesting journey because people think they know china many people think they know china because it's always in the headline news you know mm. but um i wanted to go there i wanted to explore firsthand at a walking pace and share that journey with the rest of the world and create a documentary which aired on National Geographic um, at a walking pace, but becoming, you know, partnering up with WWF as well, partnering up with Guinness World Record and becoming the first person to do so. And so I think it was lots of different things, but the main reason was I always left China at age 19 thinking, fuck, I have to return. What a country. You've done all these experiences. When you look back on them, they've obviously got different different reasons for them being interesting, exciting. 
What was the most magical when you look back? Out of the, the three, three of them? Um, I think with Mongolia, it was facing absolute isolation and being in such a silent area where I could physically hear my body ticking over. Whereas I said to my logistics manager, you know, imagine how silent it's going to be. And he said, there's no such thing as silence. And I was like, what do you mean there's no such thing as silence? He says, when you realize, and if you're at the point of the desert, you'll understand. And he didn't tell me why, but I understood. So I think that coupled with a local chasing me down on horseback, again, in the desert, he was going for miles and miles, just a dust cloud in the distance to approach me just to give me water to take away with me on my journey. And then turned around and galloped miles back, which came from out of nowhere. So I think the locals mixed with these weird things that I had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. Madagascar must have been the physical demands, you know, overcoming malaria, hacking through the jungle, living off the land. That must have been, uh, you know, that was, was a big one for me. And then... With the Yangtze, I have to say the the west of the Yangtze with just how utterly wild it was and diverse. One minute you are with bears, wolves at altitude in minus 20 snowy conditions and, you know, you're still hiking, but eventually you're there. You traded your bears and your wolves for your snakes and your spiders. It's more tropical. It's more Southeast Asian looking. It's, um, you've got herbs and spices and fruits and vegetable, yet you're still in West China, you know? So it was seeing how the land changed. And it was like, there were so many different countries within China, uh-huh. which was bizarre. So I think those, if many, cause there's too many, but maybe those kind of stand out the most. What do you want to be when you grow up? i want to i want to continue doing this i want to be an adventurer on tv where i can share these journeys and stories with the masses on big channels across the world where it's leading where you tie everything in like i always have on all of my adventures you tie in all the angles you're sharing, it's informative, it's educational, but it's entertaining. It's fucking fun. Who did I have on the show? Dominic. Mm. What's his surname? Yeah, the other adventurous TV show. You know what I mean? Dominic. Dominic, Dominic. Oh, hang on a minute. I'll dig it out. Dig yeah. It. Um, he's, he's written some some books and I've, I, I love I love talking to people that he was going down the Amazon River and the, yeah. they were shooting at him as he was going down the river and he, he wow. knew how there we go uh, sorry Benedict Benedict Allen. Allen as soon as he said shooting down the river I was like is that Benedict, Benedict Allen? Allen yes I love, and he was just rowing down and yeah. he said they weren't good assassins were they? yeah they're not very, they're not very good not very good in a kayak <laughs> they couldn't multitask a lot of shit <laughs> I think that People like you are, uh, are living our dreams. And I know that that might sound, sound a bit strange to you, but for me, I'm, I, I, I have enormous envy in the nicest possible way mm. to hear these stories, whether it's Ranulph finds you, mm. Benedict, whoever it may be. I, I listen to the stories and it, it reminds me of all the things that existed back in the 70s when I was a boy. Oh, okay, yeah. the, we, we didn't dream of technology. 
Right. You know, we dreamed of building a camp mm. out in the ditch, out the back of the house. We dreamed about running around in the woods, mm. you know, and we didn't have PlayStations. So, so we didn't dream about playing FIFA or whatever. Right. You know, it just didn't exist. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I grew up in and spent many, many of my earlier years in Nigeria. And so I oh, understood wow. what the jungle was like. I understood yeah. what the tropics were like. And so, it smelt different. Mm. The colours, you know, in, in England we have green. In Nigeria you have every different shade of green you could yeah. possibly imagine just on the side of the road, yeah. you know. Wow. And, and, and that, it, those sensations and those smells feed you, mm. you know. I've lived in 10 countries and over the years I've, I've experienced different things. I lived in Brazil for four years, you know. I've, I've lived nice. in Italy. I've, yeah. I've, I've done different things. I've lived in Thailand. I've lived in Malaysia and stuff yeah. like that. And so to go to these places and, and to see you go and put yourself in a position where you're like, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to a whole nother level, okay, <laughs> um, is, is something I'm very, I'm very uh, jealous of, yeah. but I admire you greatly for. No, appreciate that. Before we finish, tell me about your book, Mission Impossible. Yeah, the book Mission Possible. Mission Possible. Well, yeah, Mission Possible was uh, published in 2017. And so that's kind of, kind of similar to what we spoke about on this podcast. It's like the upbringing um, in Wales, a bit about my life there the early adventures, my thoughts and ideas sort of growing up onto all of the previous sort of reckless adventures, my life in Thailand, and then it covers Mongolia and the training and the planning and obviously the stories of, of taking on that journey and then Madagascar. And so that was, yeah, published 2017. Do you I still enjoy writing to... it? I, no, that's I, the answer. Yeah, I did and I didn't. I enjoyed. I enjoyed sort of digging and fleshing out these stories more with my with my editor but then it was almost yeah I kind of I would love to do another book and I want to do another book but because I see the value in books now way more than I did in 2017 um and my girlfriend is very well read she reads and reads and reads constantly and she loved the book. She was just very irritated because she wants to know more. She was like, these are crazy, crazy stories. And you touch on like about the Gobi Desert and about, you know, the dehydration and all of that. But then I pushed onto the step and she was like, whoa, rewind. Yeah. I want to go dig, you know, dig deep into the psyche. Exactly the thoughts and feelings, exactly what you were feeling at that time. Your worries, your stresses. And I kind of, I see what she means. And I do want to sort of flesh that story out well, you, much more. Well, you, what you have is a a boyhood uh, a, a excitement and yes. enthusiasm mm. around the subject matter. Yeah. So you, you're quite infectious. You know, you're sat here with me when I when I reached out to you to come on the podcast. Your response to me, okay, was is different to everybody else's response. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Everyone responds in different ways, but yours is like, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Uh, oh, by the way, can I talk to you about investing while I'm with you as well? Do you <laughs> yeah, remember you said that? Yeah, yeah. And so it was like, I, I could sense the enthusiasm. Then I sort of looked at your content and I'm like, and, and listening to you now, it's just like, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a really charming uh, aspect about the way that you, you talk and you share the stories that right. makes us all 
okay, me in particular sat here right now, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah then, and then, and then what happened next? What happened next? Yeah. You know, I'm conscious we've got, you know, we've got time to do the podcast. It's like, we could, we could spend the rest of the day talking about this. We could, yeah. Okay, kick everybody out for the rest of the day. And say, yeah. right, let's do a six-hour podcast because yeah. we still wouldn't run out of stories. We wouldn't run out of, but what happened then? So your girlfriend's absolutely right. Mm. There's so many parts of it. Please, please, please don't stop what you're doing being enthusiastic like that because I really believe that young people need someone who they can identify with mm -hmm. to get them excited about doing the kind of stuff which me on a very small level but you on a very extreme level um, need the more people in the world to do. Oh, yeah, got okay? you. Okay? Yeah. Young people need to do, they need to be pulled away from the state of the attention grabbing mobile phone yeah. or the or the PlayStation or Xbox or whatever it is into a place where they really really experience stuff mm. in real nature and can and can sense what it might be like to explore yeah. and see things you've never seen before right you know and whether that's going to Madagascar like you did and saw vegetation and fauna and stuff that exists nowhere else in the world yeah okay then to go into China where you see the change of these landscapes going on people haven't seen that yeah and more people need to mm -hmm. not going and staying in the Shangri-La, okay, <laughs> yeah. and making sure they've got Egyptian cotton. Yeah. But getting their sleeves rolled up and really going and seeing the world. Exactly. And um, you're, you're, you're the epitome of that. And so Appreciate I really thank that. you for that. Please don't stop. No, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Appreciate that. And I, I hear you. I do hear you. Thank you so much, Ash, for coming on the show thank today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Oh, that good. Oh, wicked. That was a really good conversation. That was really good. <laughs>